Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. It's August 5th, 1924, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. One of the most memorable scenes of the 1982 film musical Annie sees Annie and President Franklin D. Roosevelt duetting tomorrow to convince her wealthy benefactor, Daddy Warbucks, to support the New Deal and end the Depression. All of which would have horrified Annie's staunchly right-wing creator, Harold Gray, who introduced the character to the world on this day in a comic strip for the New York Daily News. Yeah, and he wasn't particularly political in the very first strip, at least. I found it, and the plot of it sees her condemned by the Queen for some unknown reason to eat only prunes and mush for 11 years, and then a bunch of other orphans come in and they tease her, and then she pledges to throw her dinner at the next brat who comes through the door, but the next person to come through the door isn't a brat, but Miss Asthma, who runs the orphanage, and she gets the mush in her face the end. So she's set up as this sort of of Dickensian type hero who's exploited in an orphanage but it's only much later that she starts to have these political intrigues in her life. Oh Arian I can see the complicated political symbolism of the bowl of mush was totally lost on you. (laughs) Possibly so. (laughs) I mean you know criticising a comic strip from 1924 for being one dimensional (laughs) rather misses the point doesn't it? I mean long running serialisation hadn't been done before a female protagonist especially one who's not just defined by domestic life, hadn't been done before. And the fact that she goes out and does stuff at all Mm. is new. Like, she's not just in the same setting. So, yes, she's in the orphanage at the beginning because she's Little Orphan Annie. But the story then develops. And across the astonishing 86-year run of this comic strip, uh, it went all the way until 2010. I mean, which child alive was possibly still reading it then? Um, (laughs) And he got up to all sorts of tricks, you know, Mm. which is the thing that hadn't quite been done in a strip before. Yeah, that's true. She ends up doing things like battling greedy bankers or ruthless gangsters or Nazis, depending on the era that she's uh, living through at the time. And apparently Grey had only two rules for the character. She could never reach a happy ending and she could never grow up. So it sets the scene for what I read uh, from a historian, Elizabeth Mora, who described her as the anti-Oliver Twist, whereas the male Oliver is meek and passive. 20th century Annie is neither ladylike nor cute. She's the antithesis of Shirley Temple, Maura said, and she usually ends up saving herself. So very advanced for her time. Yeah, over the 86 years, she sort of shuffles backwards and forwards from being a wandering orphan who often goes off and has adventures, does different jobs, meets different people, and living under the protection of Daddy Warbucks. And supposedly, this was because of a disagreement between Grey and the publisher of the New York Daily News. The publisher wanted her to live with Daddy Warbucks, but Grey realised that would massively restrict the amount of things she'd be able to do. So they kind of reached an agreement where half the time she'd be a wandering orphan, and the other half the time she'd be living in this mansion with Daddy Warbucks doing, you know, (laughs) rich people adventures so she managed to do a little bit of everything over all of this time and the stories obviously were very episodic as the format more or less demanded yeah episodic is the thing isn't it it is 
like a soap opera, which is the thing that you don't get unless you go back and read not just one comic strip from the time, but like two months worth, so that you can follow the story such as it is. Because there is character development, even though ultimately, as you said, there's a template where she's always transient and can never really get true resolution, and she's always doing the same things again and again. But there is a long-running story, and it's not funny. Like, I mean, that's what accounts for it not being yeah. funny. It's kind of quirky. But I remember as a kid looking back at classic comic strips and thinking, I, I don't understand what's happened. Like, why? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I know, like, with Peanuts, that's the point. But, like, with all the other ones, yeah. I, was like, I don't understand what, what, where's this, what, why is this funny. And it's not supposed to be funny. It's yeah. a story you check in with every no. single day, and then it's kind of quirky and interesting. The one that ran in the Sydney Morning Herald was The Phantom, and that used to be just sort of four panels, and I guess it was, from a newspaper's perspective, an incentive for people to keep buying the newspaper because they wanted to, because some people were following the narrative of this cartoon, and if they missed a, a day, then they wouldn't quite understand what was going on the next day. Right. Well, in 1920s America, that was millions and millions of people. We can't overstate how huge newspaper comic strips were at the time. Not only, you know, this is an era where everyone read the newspaper, but there was no TV, radio was still in its infancy, and so people did turn to comic strips as a form of entertainment in a way that just isn't the case now. At this point in history, there were 200 separate comic strips appearing every single day in US newspapers and a lot of future multimedia characters that we all know, Mm. like uh, Popeye, Buck Rogers... Flash Gordon, obviously Charlie Brown, you mentioned Peanuts, the American Dennis the Menace, not the mm. not the one from the Beano, and Dick Tracy, they all started as comic strip characters. Yeah, and Harold Gray was actually a hired pencil, as they were described, and he was working on a, another strip called The Grumps. But he decided at some point that he wanted to start his own strip up. And then there's a bit of disputed history about how he ended up uh, choosing to make his child star Annie, rather than originally uh, he was planning Otto. He says that he had decided to switch genders when he realised that of all of those strips that were running at the time, only three featured women in prominent roles. And so he decided, well, why don't I do something that's going to differentiate me? And Little Orphan Otto became Little Orphan Annie. And that entered syndication in 1924. Yeah, but that conveniently sidesteps the existence of the popular poem Little Orphan Annie, uh, which was written only 40 years prior to Harold Gray picking up his pencil. I mean, I know in pop culture that's a long time, but this was a big best-selling poem that people all over, certainly all over Indiana knew, but over most of the United States had heard this poem. It's a kind of Halloween-y type story, originally called The Elf Child, about an orphan. I don't know why they wrote orphant, but that's how they wrote it in 1885. <laughs> well, it was a dialect poem, and I think she was orphant, and that's why I she see. was yes. little orphant. Yes. Annie. Yeah. And do you know what? That same poem also inspired the name of Raggedy Ann, as in the Raggedy Ann doll. So this this one yeah. poem really had a lot of legacy. But it, yeah. I can't help feeling like if, if I ripped off some IP from 40 years ago now, like if we decided to call this podcast Top Gun, there would be repercussions, wouldn't there? Like, I just don't understand. <laughs> that would have been a good name. <laughs> How did... That's got legs, Ollie. <laughs> How did the papers like just publish this thing that was obviously based on a poem that existed? Well, one of the other early unusual things that came out of the comic strip was that it turned then into a radio show and really led the development of tie-in merchandising mm. and marketing to children, which is obviously completely commonplace today. But 
the template for it was really laid down by this show that started up in 1930. And the radio program uh, had this really unique strategy. It was sponsored by Ovaltine and the executives of the company uh, actually <laughs> got to write into the scripts ways that <laughs> listeners could pick up their chocolate drink mix. <laughs> yeah, and I think maybe the popularity of the radio show and the radio show being its own universe, to use a phrase that would be put upon this today, um, <laughs> is the reason why the musical is so different from the comic strips because I, everything I've ever seen of the musical and I'm a musical fan but I cannot stomach clips of Annie so I've never watched the whole thing I just can't it's too much <laughs> um, so I'd always just assumed that the comic strip would be just as twee as the musical it had inspired but no it's kind of like my fair lady is to Pygmalion but even more so like the comic strip has gangsters kidnapping little orphan Annie and sticking her in a bag yeah. and throwing her out of a car musical is definitely non-canon yeah Annie universe exactly <laughs> uh, whereas the radio show was perhaps that kind of middle ground that allowed the brand of Annie to be applied to a whole variety of different things that actually had nothing to do with the sort of strips that Grey was writing yeah, I think when you imagine Annie now, you think about the Depression because the movie starts in the Depression and the theme is sort of how she gets a wealthy benefactor, but then also FDR is going to turn the country around and lift everyone out of the Depression. Everybody sings Tomorrow a couple of times. Whereas the comic strip started in 1924, so it's pre-Depression. And in that universe, the election of Franklin D. Roosevelt is where everything starts to go wrong, at least if you're Harold Gray. Mm. So while in the musical on stage they, in the 1970s they're singing a song called... New Deal for Christmas. In the comic strip, the election of FDR is so ruinous that it literally kills Daddy Warbucks. He basically says, <laughs> I guess there's nothing left for a benevolent capitalist like me and dies. Grey was forced to bring him back to life a year later because th this is absolutely insane. This is not the way that you write any kind of story. But he actually died from how awful FDR was. And suddenly Annie's enemies weren't just gangsters. They were union officials, mm. communists and government bureaucrats. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think that the way that he got out of it was that he was like, no, no, Warbucks was just in a coma, so that's all okay, which it, no, it's like, is I know classic you, soap. <laughs> he was like, I know you guys thought it was really unbelievable that the election of FDR would kill Daddy Warbucks, but don't <laughs> worry, it just put him into a coma. <laughs> Next time. Eventually it was sold at auction for £2,530, and it's apparently now on display in a German museum. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors part of the ACAST Creator Network.